Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 82. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Our guest this week is Alvin Huang, founder and design principal of Synthesis Design and Architecture and an assistant professor at the USC School of Architecture. It's great having you on, Alvin. It's great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. It's a real pleasure. I've been a big fan of the podcast and know all your voices really well. So it's <laughs> nice to actually hear them talking to me as opposed to at me. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been seemingly ages since we first had you on in the very baby days of the podcast, probably about a couple of years ago, talking about the Acadia conference in 2014. So great to have you back on. Yeah, it's great to be here. That was a real blur then that you guys caught me like in the <laughs> middle of prep. And I had to like, I remember I stepped inside a, a printer room here in the, the school to uh, get a quiet space oh, to do the yeah. talk. Yeah, I remember that. We've, we've successfully upped our production quality slightly, at least, since then, <laughs> including knowing when to advise our guests to be in a quiet non-printer room. But we're so glad to have you. We wish we could have had you back in August. We wanted to invite you on on the occasion of your firm. So this is winning the AIA LA's Presidential Honoree Emerging Practice Award for Synthesis. And of course, the firm is now in its fifth year, started in 2011. Maybe you could give us some kind of an origin story about what initially inspired you to break off and start your own thing? Well, I mean, I think as with any architect, it's always been there in the back of my mind as what I wanted to do was be on my own. But for me, I think really the opportunity came about from uh, just having gotten some confidence through uh, previous experiences and not only in terms of being able to do the work, but in terms of being able to sell people on the work. And, and, and I was very confident because of a few relationships I'd established with uh, an array of clients or clients I had worked with in the past. And, uh, you know, one of the things I had told my wife was, you know, nobody's ever going to uh, come to me and say, why don't you quit your job and do this project for me? But I had a sense that if I did that first part for them, I might get a few phone calls. But to be also very honest, I was very, very fortunate in the sense of uh, having a, a teaching position to fall back on. And mm -hmm. so I was recruited to apply for a couple uh, full-time teaching positions that were tenure track and the tenure track positions allow you the, the liberty of having your uh, practice work count as your research work as long as you can justify that the practice work is research-based or academically inclined and uh, at that time we were living in London and uh, it was just after the 2008 financial crisis and we had been saving up to buy a house and suddenly it was like 40% down payment required to buy a house and it was just impossible to buy anything so we had a decent amount of money and uh I was recruited to apply for uh, a couple of positions and uh, I rolled the dice and convinced my wife instead of buying a house, we can invest in me. And uh, luckily, I, I was able to uh, hedge my bets and, you know, get one of those teaching positions and uh, started up the practice. Started off as uh, renting a desk in a co-work space in, in uh, London with uh, my good friend Marcy Song and her, her, her design practice, Scene Design. And, uh, you know, the very first employee we had was uh, a student at the AA who had, I was on his final review and he enjoyed my comments and emailed me shortly after his graduation saying, you know, I heard you had uh, started up a practice and I just graduated and nobody is hiring right now. And I would rather work for you for free than sit around doing nothing. And I brought him on with the promise that once I would be able to start paying him, I would. And after we won our first contract, back paid him for two months of work. And it's kind of gone from there, I guess. 
to all of those recent grads out there, that's, I mean, should they be so lucky to get back payment or to be able to get something like that? That's a, I feel like that's a valuable story. I don't know if an architect has ever heard the word back payment. (laughs) (laughs) Never uttered the word back payment. I'd like to collect all of the back payments for my 80 hour weeks that I put in with you. So you you actually started out in a co-working space. What was it like trying to kind of establish some degree of like normal office kind of day to day in a space like that? Well, I mean, it was co-working in the sense that it was someone else's office and I was one of a few people that were also renting desks and we were all designers and the entire building was set up that way. So it was a bunch of young designers in, in creative space in, in the Hackney Shoreditch London. So it's like, uh, you know, very creative type place, which is quickly gentrifying to the point that now that building's no longer there and is being replaced with a tower. But it's not dissimilar to the way my situation is now. When I came to LA, it was also working, renting desks in someone else's space uh, with my friend Jennifer Marmon at uh, PAR, who actually a few years ago won the same award for the AIA Emerging Architect. But now I do the reverse and I, I rent out desks in my space and it allows us to, one, have colleagues and uh, people to talk to, but also gives a, a slightly better impression when you have uh, clients or even if you're doing like a Skype conference call, like just the fact that there's people in the background and the space is a little bit bigger. You know, I, I've actually once had a client come in from China and uh, they came to visit me in the office space. And, you know, it was like maybe 15, 20 people in the office, but only four of them worked for me. And he said, he said, he said, uh, out of all these people who are your senior designers. And I said, oh, those four are right there. <laughs> <laughs> who are your janitors? Those yeah. four are right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally fake it till you make it. Well, that's, uh, it's, it's firing too to come. I'm imagining like after the horrors of a recession era thing to be able to come to LA and have some degree of of security with uh, teaching. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like trying to balance the teaching work and the firm beginnings? Um, it's still a struggle. I mean, I, I, I would say between uh, the practice, the teaching, the research, my family, I'm in a, what I would call a permanent state of guilt. <laughs> you know, there's always somebody, something that's not getting enough attention, whether it's my children, my wife, my projects, my staff, my students, my tenure track case, my faculty commitments, which is why I'm, I'm happy I made it on time today. I feel like I'm always playing catch up, but at the same time, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I I think one of the things I'm really interested in terms of practice is this intersection between practice, research, and academia and and being able to have a foot in both. I read a really interesting article today by a guy named uh, Peter Raisbeck. That's his name. Uh, It was posted by uh, a friend, Peter Zellner. And it was about the kind of separation between uh, practice and and, uh, academia. And the title of the blog post was called Suits Versus Designers. And it was just kind of like talking about why this schism has occurred and why like in the academy, there's almost a sort of resentment towards practice. And then there's this kind of labeling of, of practice as selling out. And, you know, I think what I'm quite interested in is this, I guess, application of academia or of design research into practice, where I think sometimes I think the academy gets too caught up in novelty for the sake of novelty. So then what in your practice, because you are able to do your research as part of the tenure track position, what are the kind of things that you feel are the most advantageous to bring from the practice world into the academic world? Well, I think one thing that is very clear for me is the the constraints. 
you know, and, and uh, oh, the realities. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's just the constraints, right? So I, I've recently, like, I've given this talk a number of times now. I've been giving this talk, and I stole a title of a talk from uh, Cedric Price, which he gave in 1966, I believe, at the AA in London. Technology is the answer, but what is the question? And I've kind of started realizing that a lot of the technology, because I'm heavily into computation and digital fabrication and a lot of these kind of emergent design technologies, and a lot of the research and uh, kind of things that are happening in the academy tend to be about technological questions and technological answers. And I'm quite interested in what I would call either cultural questions or social questions or disciplinary questions or, or project-related questions or even client-related marketing questions that technology might help me answer or might provide answers to. And, and I think that's kind of the way I've been looking at the work is this kind of intersection between those two worlds. And, and you know, the, the academy, I think, is super important. And, and obviously, the, the, the profession and the discipline are, are as well. And I, I'd like to think that I'm exploring that kind of intersection. I mean, of course, this is a debate that go, rages on and on. And people feel very strongly about on either side. And of course, there are many other positions to have in between of how to balance this embracing of speculation and free reign of academic enterprises with the actual goal that you become a trained architect in the end and that you're capable of being a competent practitioner. And I think that in a way, after the recession, that people might have thought there would have been more of a focus on just simply like the monetization aspect of like how many different ways can you just make these trained architects into actually good business people as well. And at the same time, we do, while you did seek, or it seems as if there was a emergence of kind of more development centric programs or real estate programs or whatever in architecture schools, you also had this like you didn't have any harm being done to the purely speculative part of it. And I, I'm interested too, given like, because your education is so much in the field of that kind of very technologically focused and computation heavy work that you're in kind of a genre of architectural practice that seems it, like it would be pretty sympathetic to that purely speculative stuff in academia. But it sounds like you've kind of moved away from that in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think when I first came to USC and I left London, I, you know, I had studied at the AA, did the design research laboratory and worked for Zaha and Future Systems and Amanda Levitt Architects and was working in a sort of a time frame where one, the speculative was, was we were doing at the AA was super science fiction. And then to the practice that I was involved with in London that I got trained in was, you know, working on projects in a time in a, this sort of, I don't even know if you can call it a golden era, but it, this time frame where almost anything could be done as long as he threw enough money at it. And there was plenty of money to go around. And we, like me and my colleagues felt sort of like these sort of architectural James Bonds, you know, you're, you're spending your, you're, you're, you're flying around the world, going to all these different amazing locations, working on these amazing projects, working with amazingly wealthy people. And then 2008 happened and suddenly there was this kind of pullback, right? And one on a kind of financial issue where you're, you're you know, the, the austere starts to become more relevant because there's less money and you have to be able to justify what you're doing formally as having value. And two, I think there's been this kind of digital fatigue in the discipline and in academia. And so a lot of what I've been thinking about and looking at is like, I'm not going to pretend I'm not interested in form. I'm super interested in form. And it's always been something that's fascinated me. But I was trying to find ways to 
be able to justify it. And, you know, one of the things I've always looked at as somebody from LA is, you know, watching the Disney concert hall go up was the fact that you could value engineer the farm all the way out of the building and the building would still operate and the building would still be exactly the way the building was designed just without the form. And then I started looking at some of my heroes like Felix Candela and Fry Otto and, and Pierluigi Nervi and th these great design engineers where it's impossible to separate form and performance. And so that, that relationship became something that uh, really sparked me and, and got me interested in that. And as my career has progressed, I think I've also, I'm still super interested in the computation and the digital fabrication and the design technology. But I'm starting to realize I more and more want to be known as a designer than as a computational specialist. And that I can have my foot in both, but if I had to choose one, like I would like for my work to be known as forward-thinking quality design rather than as forward-thinking quality design computation. So I have to ask then, what about your time at Zaha? How did that kind of influence your, your way of thinking about these things? Oh, well, I mean, that was the combination of the AA and Zaha were easily hands down the most formative years of my career, my professional career. And uh, the people that I was surrounded with was easily the most it's the most amount of design talent I've ever been around in my life. And the amount of things you learn from them, the amount of things you learn from that atmosphere, which is, you know, I, I was, we had to keep timesheet and uh, I was there a little bit over three and a half years. And um, when I quit, I, I downloaded all my timesheets and added them up and divided them by 40 hours a week and realized I had been there seven and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, yeah. But at the same time, you know, it was something that like, it was just such an intense experience. And I would equate it a little bit to like having, okay, I'm not going to equate it in, in this sense, because I, I, I can't qualify being a veteran or, or what it really feels like to be a veteran. But I will jokingly refer to it as like, when you hear people go, Oh, remember back in Nam? Like every, every time you meet somebody from Zaha's, you're like, oh, remember back in Zaha's when this happened or when that happened or remember this. And, you know, I just had this uh, amazing uh, experience in Bangalore, India. I just got back this weekend. I was there for four days and uh, taught a workshop and participated in the symposium. And it was, you know, myself and uh, Jason Johnson from uh, University of Calgary, uh, Simon Kim from University of Pennsylvania, and uh, Mark Fornes from The Very Many in New York. And it was organized by uh, our friend Sujit Nair, who has a small practice in Bangalore called uh, SDEG. And all four of us had studied in London. Uh, four of the five had worked for Zaha. Uh, all five of us had gone to the AA together. And it was just this amazing constellation of, of people that had pulled together and was attracted to this city and this location and this culture at the same time in the same place. And, you know, the people that I've met there that have gone on to do their own thing and are now teaching elsewhere in the world, it, it's something I, I, I can't, I, I really can't emphasize how much it has shaped who I am. Well, considering your experience working at that office, what do you think about the future of Zaha Adida Architects now that Zaha is no longer a part of that. It's super interesting. I mean, I'm 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 still in contact with uh, Patrick quite frequently. I, I see him at events, and uh, you know, I'll I'll be going in uh, October for her uh, memorial. But it is a big question mark, and I think you know, I still have quite a lot of friends who work there. But it's a very very different place than when I was there. So I won't pretend like I know. When I joined the office, there was 40 people. When I left, there was 150. I believe now there's 450. So it, it, it's, you know, a very, very different place than when I was there. 
but I am very, very curious. I am very interested and definitely have, have my eyes on what they're doing and what happens next. So Alvin, the, the um, you know, looking through the, the work on your website, which I imagine is either up to date or it's not, but just looking at the work, a lot of your constructed work and completed is uh, outside the States. Uh, how do you see two things? Do you see this award changing anything in that regard to maybe uh, more built work here architecturally? And then second, I think the, the one question I have related to that is that, you know, you have a lot more unbuilt than built. And what I'd like to ask you about is, um, is a question uh, related to, I was at a uh, lecture of years ago where uh, Tom Main was at uh, Columbia and um, Kenneth Frampton was giving him shit about his uh, Chiba golf course. And Tom Main really snapped back and basically said, you know, fuck that. It wasn't built. It was built. It was 1500 motherfucking drawings because they couldn't pull their financing together. Doesn't mean it wasn't constructed. So clearly there was value gained from having gone through that experience. I mean, when you look at your work and you're seeing, you know, even you know you don't have a large body of work, you know, constructed, do you think about how that work that you've done and um, how that moves you forward? And where do you see yourself in that trajectory in that respect? Um, absolutely. So number one, the Asia projects are something that uh, we were able, I, I think a lot of the work we did was only possible because it was Asia. And I do hope that the award leads to more work here. Hint, hint, anybody who's listening. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think in large part, a lot of that is, you know, winning work is really about relationships. And I, I had some relationships in Asia and I was able to uh, capitalize on those. But winning work is also about proving your ability to deliver. And I think that's what the difference between the unbuilt work and the built work is, is the unbuilt work can have great ideas. The unbuilt work can be expressive of a way of thinking and a, a kind of aesthetic language and perhaps identifying some of the things that I think we as architects are really interested in in terms of who we are as like say for instance who i am as a designer or what my formal language is or what my interests as research are but when it comes to selling the work the proof is in the pudding and i think being able to actually prove to people that we can deliver these things is the uh the value of that work and i think one interesting example is is i just mentioned my, my good friend mark fornes of the very many and uh you know he, he's doing this kind of intersection between art and architecture and, and these kind of you know what started off as really really small scale art installations and have just been continuing to grow and scale and size and what he's been able to prove and is that he's able to deliver and whether or not it's ever going to relate into a building in the conventional sense, who knows? But we, I can't deny the fact that what started off as small art installations is now developed into an amphitheater. And he's able to you know, continuously prove with a bigger and bigger scale each time that he can manage a budget, manage a deadline, manage 3,000 components and a project team and a delivery team and a schedule and, and make these things happen. And I think that's the value of, of being able to build, apart from the fact that that's what I'm interested in. It's funny when I look at your work and I see the unbuilt, I kind of, I, I see the ideas present, but the execution is really what matters. And when you see the built work, you can see that the clarity of the, the communication and the design and the execution kind of really work 
very well hand in hand. And, and that leads me to my next point, you know, and I never saw this thread on Arcanex. So when I, uh, when it was referenced, I went back and I read it. It was very interesting. And I have to commend you on the, uh, the two posts or whoever it was that posted those two. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of shit coming at you about your, <laughs> about your Volvo project yeah. and how it wasn't going to work. It was a complete failure. And, and you came, whoever it was, I, I'm a, I, I, I I kind of want to think it was you because it's so so clutch that somebody would actually pull through and actually do something like that when uh but um that you said we're going to try this this is a you know you basically lay out what we all know which is a design idea doesn't represent the reality and you're going to try to execute it and, mm-hmm. and make the thing that's presented in the renderings and then to the client and you're going to try to execute it. It may work, it may not work. You're not, didn't seem too afraid of whether or not that was going to happen or not. You were just excited to get it and, and follow through. But then when you came back and you you threw it down on the table and go, here fuckers, it not only worked. And, <laughs> and he never swore. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing for you. <laughs> and you throw it down and then the the comments that come back were like, oh, yeah, but how much it costs? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, sure. It costs. But nobody really acknowledged that. Well, not only did it cost design money, it cost uh, the labor to put it together, to fabricate it. The base was included in your cost. No one acknowledged any of that stuff. And they were like, yeah, but it cost $80,000. Yeah. It's impractical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so can you talk a little bit just that to me was uh, very important in seeing that execution and the design, you know, even looking at the design and seeing the execution and how well they seamlessly kind of connect. That was pretty genius. Th- thank you. That was one of my favorite moment, internet moments of my you know, <laughs> of, of my career. Yeah, I, I do remember it very clearly. And, and you know, I talked about this with Donna when we first met at the uh, Syracuse Super Jury. At Super Jury. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, I had posted something about it, and somebody had come back and you know uh, ripped the project apart and. You know, to say I was not scared was incorrect. Like I was shitting my pants, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know was very, very concerned we were not going to pull it off. Um, we did manage to pull it off, and this was pre-emoticon days, or I would have had a mic drop on there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it's something that I guess for me is definitely part of the nature of, of you know, the, 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 the prototype, the architecture of the prototypical is something that gets talked about a lot in the, the circles that I inhabit and, and it's something that we're really interested in, which is, you know, pushing ideas. And, you know, in the end, it was definitely not a commercially viable, uh, like in terms of mainstream production, like you're not going to have, you know, a million of those Volvo pavilions that, you know, get distributed with every new Volvo V60 that gets purchased. But we really wanted to push this idea. And, you know, I think I, I just had a, a client presentation the other day. And after the presentation, and this was not a pitch of a project, it was a pitch for a project. And I kind of presented the portfolio and the Afterwards, you know, they were, they asked me, you know, what which project was my favorite out of all of those, and I told them the usual, you know, it's like asking me to choose between my children. But the main thing I said is that you know the Volvo Pavilion was the one where it was the one time where we got a chance to say for the client because it was a competition to say this is what we want, and us to come back and say no, actually this is what you want, and, and you know it was a open competition for a portable pavilion to showcase the Volvo V60. Everybody, 250 submissions basically put together kind of a series of uh, prefabricated garages. Some were very nice, some were not so nice. But the strategy we took was to think of the pavilion more as a uh, 
accessory than a destination and, and saying that, you know, if it's a car and it's an electric car, why not have the pavilion charge the car and flat pack to fit inside the trunk of the car? And uh, I'm just happy we were able to pull it off. That was one of my favorite moments too on our connect that when you sort of came back and said, so look, we did do it. And, um, you know, it was a research project and it was wonderful to, yeah, to just have that moment of you rocked it. But in the meantime, though, since then, and that was a few years ago, we'll put a link to that, to that thread. You have been very active on social media in all kinds of platforms. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you incorporate that into your practice? I mean, I feel like every day I see something pop up in one of your feeds. That's some super cool project you're working on. Yeah, well, I, I would say that, uh, you know, social media has been an opportunity in, in, I think, every sense where, you know, you look at what's happening in the music industry and film industry and, you know, self-promotion and self-publication is a way to get your stuff out there. And uh, I've definitely taken full advantage of that. You know, what we do is hyper-visual and uh, Instagram in particular is, is something where I particularly like Instagram, not only as a sort of a contributor, but as a, a, a viewer or a voyeur in the fact that Instagram is very much like projecting the way you see the world. So it's not just for me, it's not just about literally putting up my work. It's also about a curated set of photographs and images of things that frame the way I view the world or what I'm interested in. And, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with my friend uh, Takashi Yanai, who's uh, one of the partners at uh, Ehrlich Architects about this. And I think Takashi has something like 35,000 followers on Instagram or something like that, something ridiculous. And, and you know, he's in charge of their uh, kind of residential architecture. And, and he uh, he's the kind of guy where he's told me stories where he'll like go to a coffee shop, take a picture of his coffee, and the person next to him will go, are, are you Takashi? <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and he, you know, he's said, we've talked about this, and he, you know, he, he said like, you know, because it's about the way he views the world, that's very much the way that design is sold, is that you're looking for the designer that sees the world in a way that either you see the world or that you want the world to be seen or you want your world to be seen in. And, uh, you know, he hasn't had it happen, neither have I, but I would imagine someday that maybe there will be a client that might, you know, come across from social media. So, uh, you know, these uh, podcasts, you've been listening to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Got one, two questions for you. What am I listening to and what am I reading? <laughs> That's right. Oh, ding, 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 ding. Yes. yes. <laughs> One day Ken will get asked that question, but yeah. today is not that day. <laughs> so listening to, uh, other than this podcast. Um, Sweet. How does it sound? I, I really don't listen to it much. <laughs> it, it sounds great, particularly good today. Yeah, of course. It's fantastic today. <laughs> well, I, I would say that like, I, I do listen to a lot of lectures and, and architectural talks. I'm kind of a, a geek. And, and in some ways, I, I guess I'm a geek in, in both ways stuck in the 90s. So I, I listen to a lot of uh, 90s hip hop, which is where my heart is. I feel like I'm very blessed to have been raised in the 90s in the kind of golden era of hip-hop. And I've been in love with uh, this new Netflix series, uh, The Get Down. But because of that, I'm also very much a 90s child for architecture. And uh, I've really been fascinated with the, the recent uh, Greg Lynn show ho hosted by the CCA, where he's the series of kind of talk show vignettes, bringing in uh, heroes of the 90s digital and uh, interviews with Neil Denari and uh, 
Nader Tarani and uh, other people that have really kind of, you know, Alejandro Zeropolo, like kind of been part of my formative years of architecture that I that, that I look at as, as uh, heroes. And it's been nice to see how they have all kind of gone from being at that time, the sort of alternative non architects to actually being established and recognized offices and, and that, that that's been really fun in terms of reading my reading i, I have to say I, I have a hard time staying awake <laughs> like I, I start books i have a stack of books next to my bed that i start and then they are like vicodin for me like i i i, I just go straight yeah. to bed um so what i've found is actually moving towards books that actually move me out of the sort of architectural reading or more serious reading, although I guess some of them are kind of serious. So recently uh, I've been reading a double cup love a book by Eddie Huang, the uh, guy who founded Bauhaus in New York and uh, started the, the TV series fresh off the boat. And uh, you know, as an Asian American, like it, it's really interesting for me to kind of connect with this identity of another Asian American man who has come from uh, his immigrant family and, and established himself in a world that uh, is not about him necessarily being Asian American, but very much he remains connected to that identity. And uh, another book, which I've had on my book stand and I, I keep starting and, and never really getting into, but particularly today, uh, I, I would really like to mention it, is Ta-Nessie Coates' uh, Between the, the World and Me. And like I'm thoroughly disgusted and disturbed with uh, the, the things that just keep happening in our country and uh, in terms of uh, these police shootings. And uh, that that's something that I really, I can't say I've gotten far into it, but I can say I feel like it's a really important book for me to read. You know, it's... Um... On that book, on uh, with regard to that book, I'll just say this, that if you have the chance, listen to it on audio books. He narrates it. Mm -hmm. And there's a poignancy and an emotion that is captured by him reading his own book that's that kind of helps, it infills something that's a little bit different than reading the book, I think. It brings some uh, another layer of uh, seriousness. I bet. Because I mean, I, I also struggle a lot on this issue because I have children. And uh, I had quite a few black friends when I went to school and uh, grew up around a lot of black kids. And, you know, this is an issue that, you know, now when having a son and having to, you know, think about what it would be like to be on the other side. You know, my, my, my son has a very close friend who's an African-American kid. And, you know, like, like I think often about Cameron and his father, Reggie, and, and what conversations Reggie must have with Cameron, you know, and, and you know, it's tough. It's really, really tough. It is. That's a, yeah, that's a really hard thing we're dealing with constantly every single day <laughs> lately to the point that it seems like it has to, things have to get better, right? Because there's, they're so awful right now. But, but the horrible thing is, is I feel like it's just, Ugh. it's the exact opposite. It happens so much now that people are numb, mm. right? It, it, you're, people have actually become numb. It just continues to happen. Well, now it's happening. I think that's the thing is that it's always been happening, but now it's happening in a different type of media age where we're seeing it. And you're right, it's numbing and you don't quite know what to do. And I think there's at some point where my people are going to have to decide what's valuable in our society. And um, we still haven't yet, collectively. I say we, my people. On a lighter note, you know, I, I, I would say that Eddie Huang's book is really funny and it's worth reading just to lighten up the, <laughs> the topic a little bit. He had a great show on, uh, on Vice, I think. 
yeah. the fresh off the boat, the original fresh off the boat before it went mainstream and onto uh, network television. Yeah, I mean, he's somebody I, I connect with in, in a sort of tangential vein. Like I said, I, I grew up around a, a bunch of black kids when I was in high school, and uh, you know, hip hop culture was something for me that also, you know, as a as a youth, really resonated with me as a as an other. Well, if you have a, some particular tracks too, send them over and we can we can post them to the show notes and give people not just the soundtrack to Fresh Off the Boat, but whatever you were listening to at that time. I think that'd be really great. All right, I will. I, I will do that. We should create a Spotify playlist for all of our all of our guests. Totally listening recommendations. Oh, actually, I, I presented at a South by Southwest Eco a couple last year, and it was the first time ever where before the talk they emailed me and asked what track I wanted to come out to. <laughs> that's would you come that's out pressure. To? Yeah, what'd you yeah. pick? I came out to uh, Umi Says by Most Def. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> okay, we're definitely going to somehow work that into the show as well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Alvin. It was great talking with you. Likewise, and uh, keep up the good work, guys. Uh, I will continue listening even when I'm not on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Thank you so much. Flattery. Hopefully we'll have you back again. All right, take care, guys. Well, thanks to Alvin and everyone out there listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. All right, until next week. Until next week. Thanks, you thanks guys. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. Bye. Peace. Bye.